Hello, everyone. Nice to see you all out there. It is a busy day, isn't it? We got church and a church life meeting, but we do feed you, so that's what we do to try to keep you here. Any of you going to watch the NFC Championship game by chance? Anyone? Anyone? No? Okay, a few of you are willing to say you will. Any 49er fans here? I'm a little worried that the Lions have kind of the emotional edge. Everybody feels sympathy for them, right? Because they haven't been there in ever. Uh, but I will be doing that. Well, so it's good to be together this morning. I love the table set up, even though some of you had trouble probably finding a seat. Hopefully, if you don't have a seat back there, we'll find you a spot. We're in a series called Prophets and Prophecy. And we're looking today, and we were looking over the next actually four weeks we've been doing this, we'll be doing this, looking at the prophet Amos, the book of Amos by the prophet Amos. For those of you who are not familiar, a prophet is one who speaks for God, who actually speaks the words of God to, in this context, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And what we'll learn actually is interesting as we study this together. We learn actually from Susan from last week talked about the fact that Amos is not kind of this established professional prophet. It turns out he's actually a sheep breeder and a cattleman and a fruit grower who is living in the kingdom of Judah, but he becomes so aware of and burdened by what's going on with the people of Israel and is in that burden is feeling this burden that God has given him that he is so intensely feeling so intense about this that he's got he's got to speak the words of God to the nation of Israel. And so these words that we're going to be looking at and that we've been looking at are not sweet, they're not encouraging or comforting in many ways. In fact, in a lot of ways, they're harsh words of judgment about how other nations, and especially the nation of Israel, have treated others badly and they've ignored their God. And today we're going to continue in this lesson or this this book from Amos, and we're going to look at chapters 3 and 4. But before we do that, I want to pray for us. So if you wouldn't mind praying together. So Lord, we thank you for this message in your word. We also know that it's not always easy, and in fact, Sometimes it can be really hard, but I pray that you would speak to us through this word. You've given it to us for a purpose, and I pray that as we learn from it, that you would really show us what it is that you're saying even to us today, and how we can learn more about who you are. And I pray that that would be true for each one of us, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at Amos, Amos chapter 3 starts with these words. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Kind of a nice little start, right? (laughs) Notice something as you look at this. um, There are quotation marks around verse 2 there. And I think it's always interesting as you think about prophecy in these books, is these are actually God's words being spoken through Amos to his people in Israel. He's saying these words directly, and I think it's helpful to realize that God is a speaking God. We believe that he speaks today, and he spoke as well in the past. And these are words that he is speaking from his heart. And I look at these words, and I don't know about you, but as I think about these words of God, these are words that could actually maybe break your heart as you look at what he's saying. You can almost hear a pleading or an anguish from God's heart because he's reminding Israel that He's chosen them. They're his people. He's the one that gave them his name, and he's the one that brought them out of Egypt. And he brought them out of slavery, and he'd given them a home. And everyone around them knows that Yahweh is Israel's God. 
And so how the Israelites are acting is reflecting as well on who he is as God. And unfortunately, the Israelites are really acting pretty horribly. They've been sinning, and God's saying, I'm not going to let this sit. I can't let this go past. I have to punish you for all your sins. Rather than actually the Israelites kind of getting a special pass from God because of this special relationship that they have with him, God is not going to be able to ignore their behavior. And in fact, he can't ignore it because they bear his name. They represent who he is to those around them. And in fact, it makes God actually a little bit extra angry with them because they're doing wrong to others while they're bearing his name. In fact, a little bit later in the same chapter, we see this where God is inviting Israel's enemies to come and see the sin that's going on. He says, Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. These were places that were enemies of Israel. And he's saying, Look, come assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. What is Israel doing that's so bad? Well, God says there's unrest and there's oppression among the people. And he says, this is such an interesting phrase, he says they don't know how to do right. Which is interesting, right? Because these are the people that God gave laws to. God gave them a special set of laws to tell them what to do and what not to do. And somehow they've forgotten it or they've maybe ignored it. They're no longer regarding this. They're disregarding the rules. And in fact, in, many, in almost every way, they're going and doing the opposite, including, as he says, plundering and stealing things they're now hoarding in their homes. The Israelites have this special relationship with God, and God cares about this relationship and how they're living that out. And it's interesting, later on in the, Old, in the New Testament, Jesus talked about this concern that God has, and he said how God makes this very clear. And in fact, Jesus ties this concern of God's back to this book of Amos. He says this in Matthew, when, when someone asks him, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything that Amos is speaking to the Israelites is summed up in what Jesus is saying here. Love God and love your neighbor. And that's what this, when he says the law and the prophets are summed up in this, it's like that's what this is about and you're missing this. And he wants them to understand this. And the Israelites somehow, they know the rules, they know what they should be doing, they're not doing it. So I think the lesson is this, that is a good lesson for us to learn. When you bear God's name, you can't ignore what matters to him. When you bear God's name, you can't ignore what matters to him. In fact, with greater privilege comes greater responsibility in how we honor God and treat those around us. God does really care about how we interact with those around us. And maybe the question you could ask is, well, why can't we ignore these things that matter to God? Well, one of the reasons is because when we do what God hates, it actually, and when we treat others badly, it upsets him. It actually makes him angry. Now, I think this is tricky because for many of us, this idea of an angry God is difficult, right? We, we find it a little bit of a disturbing image, an angry God. Wait, well, I thought he was merciful. Well, he also can get angry, and it's often the primary image we may see of him sometimes in the, in the Old Testament. And I think especially for many of us, many of us experience anger from other humans in our lives. It's not been very healthy. It's not been expressed healthily. It's maybe done, it's been manipulative or, or, or even uh, hurtful to us in a way. And so oftentimes we can often see God's anger in that form. 
and it makes us feel bad or it makes it feel bad. But the truth is this. We need a God who cares enough to get angry when people sin and hurt one another. We need a God who actually cares enough to get angry when people sin and hurt one another. Do you guys remember a number of years ago the George Floyd protests? Do you remember those? We were all kind of locked down, and then this thing happened where uh, George Floyd was unjustly murdered, and suddenly emotions erupted. People took to the streets. You remember that? There were people, I remember, still in the corner of Castro and Mountain View, people marching and having signs. People did not go to the streets to go, you know, that was kind of an unfortunate incident, uh, but things happen, let's move on. Right? They didn't march into the streets to kind of go, well, you know, stuff happens, but let's go on. No, they were mad. They were angry. Why were they angry? They were justifiably anger, angry because they, they wanted someone to be punished. They wanted something to change. They're like, this can't go on. This is not okay. It wasn't enough to be mildly concerned. The anger that was going on was driven by the injustice of the act. When things are wrong, when people are oppressed or injustice happens, we don't want a mildly concerned God. We don't want a God who's like, well, you know, it'll be fine. A holy and righteous God can do nothing less than be offended by our sin, and he has to take action to make it right. Because, as I was saying earlier, God cares about how we treat one another and cares about how we relate to him. And it's for this reason that I think it's good for us to have a proper fear of not purposely upsetting God. Okay, so when I was growing up, I was generally a pretty good kid. But I had my moments. Kids, how many of you have had your moments where you've forgotten or ignored what your parents told you and you did something wrong? Anybody? I love it. I'm seeing adults even share this. Okay. All of us. Do you remember these moments? Maybe you did something you shouldn't have done. Anybody remember these kinds of things? And maybe even knew you weren't supposed to do it. Okay. I remember a time when for some reason, and I'm not sure why, but I drew on the walls of our house with a a permanent marker. And here's the thing. I, I, I knew it wasn't right. I just wanted to give it a try. Huh. This is interesting. Let's try this. Um, well, of course, when my mom discovered it, she was livid, as many of you parents might know. But it was kind of more than she could handle. It was a little overwhelming. I had not done this before, but suddenly there's a wall full of, you know, permanent images. Not very good ones, by the way. So she needed backup. So what she said to me was, wait till your father gets home. (laughs) You ever heard that? Anybody heard that before? Wait till your father gets home. Okay, well, that was the longest, worst wait that I can remember, right? The rest of my day was kind of shot. Not really possible to have a lot of fun. I was just watching the clock, hoping dad would get home pretty late. Sometimes he had late meetings, thinking, oh, maybe he'll get a late meeting and it'll be late. Nope, he came home, and I could hear him and my mom talking, and I could hear his voice get louder. He did what? (laughs) He was angry. Needless to say, I received a stern lecture and a firm punishment. But the message was clear to me. I had done wrong, and it was not okay for me to treat property in that manner. Now, I think maybe what was worse than the punishment, I'm actually trying to remember all the elements of it, but I remember my parents being angry at me. I remember upsetting my parents, and that may have been the thing that was even worse for me, was this idea that I had really, really disappointed my parents in what I was doing or what I'd done wrong. Has that ever happened to you? Anybody, kids, adults? 
you've disappointed someone by the things you did wrong. Maybe things you knew when you were doing it were not the right things to do. You know, in this day and time, I don't think we like to talk about fearing God, because oftentimes fear feels bad. But the fear of God is a proper and healthy reverence for what God cares about and a desire to not offend him. Because what offends God isn't trivial or selfish. It's actually he wants us to do right and good. And what's going on in this prophecy that Amos is having to speak about, that God wants him to share, is that the Israelites are doing horrible things to each other, and it's offending God, and he's angry. He's angry about it because he cares. And it says this in verse 8 of chapter 3, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The lion has roared, who will not fear? How many of you actually have heard a lion, a live lion roar? Anyone? Anyone had a chance? There's a few of you folks. I, we took my, so when my kids are younger, we used to go to the zoo a good amount. We went to the San Francisco Zoo at one point. <clears throat> and if you remember, I don't know if they still have it. They had the Lion House building, and they may have closed it, but at the time, they had this building, right? Four walls, and <clears throat> the lions, when they would feed them, would bring them into the cages, and then they would feed them. So I'm there with the kids, and my wife's there, and there's one point where a male lion lets out a full roar, and it freaked us out. It was really terrifying. It kind of shook our bones. I think my kids were like, I don't think I want to go back in there again, kind of thing, right? Amos is letting us know that in the wild, especially, lions don't roar for no reason. There's a reason why they roar, and there's a reason to fear that roar, because the lion is going to, when the lion roars, action's coming. And the lesson is this, I think. A healthy fear of making God angry is appropriate because it helps us prioritize what God cares about. A healthy fear of making God angry is appropriate because it helps us prioritize what he cares about. Now, here's the wonderful news for those of us that are past the Old Testament, and we're now living in the New Testament times, is that the grace of Jesus has come. And we don't need to fear the judgment or punishment of God, because Jesus took God's anger and his wrath against the unrighteousness that is in all of us, and he took it upon himself. And we now can trust in Jesus for that covering and that protection. But the fact is, that doesn't mean we can now ignore what pleases and honors God. We still need to continue to live in ways that please and honor God, especially for the things that he cares about. The Apostle Paul was saying something along these lines when, in the New Testament, he understood all of this, and he says, for you were bought at a price. He's saying this to believers in Christ. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In other words, God has rescued you and me if you follow Jesus. He's rescued us from the, from the punishment we deserve. He rescued Israel in the same way, and now he wants us to live in a way that honors and glorifies his name. Let's dig a little bit further into some of these things in Amos that, that really upset God, that make him angry. In later in chapter 3, we read this. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy has overrun your land, pulled down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. Or will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. And then dropping down to verse 13. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be demolished, and the mansion will be destroyed, and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. 
So Susan mentioned this last week, and by the way, if you haven't listened to that sermon, I would encourage you to do that. But she mentioned something about the time for Israel at this time. Israel is actually pretty prosperous right now. Israel is actually doing fairly well. They've been getting a lot of money in from the trade process. They've expanded their borders. They have peace, basically, with their enemies. And they're actually practicing their religion in the ways that they want to in all the different spots. So they're doing, on the surface, fairly well. And yet God is not happy with them. He says he'll tear down their places of worship, and he's going to tear down these symbols of wealth that are expressed in forms like winter and summer houses and these mansions that are very well decorated with ivory things, which you couldn't get ivory in Israel. So that had to come from faraway trade kind of thing. So what's going on? Why is God kind of upset about this? Like, like does this mean that you need to sell your ski cabin if you happen to have one, by the way? Is that what God's upset about? Well, maybe, but let's look at further clues. We don't want to just run off with that, right? We want to see what else is going on. So Amos kind of starts to be a little more specific, and we start this in chapter 4. He says this, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, Bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out toward Harmon. Okay. So we know that Israel's preaching this, you know, uh, Amos is preaching this to Israel, but I'm sort of thinking, you know, maybe he thinks he can get out of there without too much trouble. But if he wanted to do that, I doubt he would want to, I mean, I'm not sure he's thinking correctly if he's going to call the women of, the, of Israel the cows of Bashan, right? Probably not so smart of him, right? That kind of seems like a recipe to, for disaster. Why would he do that? Why would he kind of just throw that out there? Well, what he's saying is this. The cows of Bashan were well-known at that time. They were actually, uh, there was a certain area across the Jordan where cows were kept that were, it was a very fertile area, and these cows took special care and water and pasture, and it made them fat and healthy, which in a time when things were up and down was a big deal. And so they were very well-prized, and they were costly. They would often be used for royalty or things like that, these cows of Bashan. So Amos appears to be calling out the privileged women of Samaria— those who were probably part of the ruling class, the ones who had mansions, my guess, the mansions with ivory in the summer and the winter houses, and he says these well-fed women oppress the poor and crush the needy, demanding to be catered to in their luxury and their laziness. Okay. It's interesting. There's a point where it says they, they tell their husband, bring us some drinks, and it's like, what's going on there? And I think that it suggests this idea that they're demanding that their husbands that they're driving, they're continuing to be part of this driving their husbands as well to maintain their lifestyle, to maintain what they want in this luxury and in this laziness. And these are really strong words, right? You look at this and it's like, whoa. Like, and here's my question. How are these well-fed, overindulged women actually oppressing the poor and crushing the needy, right? I mean, I could argue maybe, maybe their lifestyle is self-indulgent and they're extravagant, but how are the poor involved in this process? I, I, that part I'm struggling a little bit trying to get that connection, But I was thinking about this, and back in Amos 2, if you remember from last week, God's judgment against Israel started with this accusation. He says, they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. They trample on the heads of the poor, they deny justice to the oppressed, they oppress the poor and crush the needy. That phrase, this trample on the heads of the poor and crush the needy, I've been thinking about this all week, actually. It's been kind of sitting with me, and it's just kind of like trample, like crush, like what? What causes someone to trample or crush another person? Like, what is that? And I was thinking about it, and I think you trample 
someone or something when you want something so much more badly than that thing that's in your way. When that thing that you want is so important to you that whatever gets in the way, you're going to run over them. Any of you guys remember Black Friday shopping back when you couldn't order everything on Amazon? Remember, remember that? There were days like, this was kind of the big deal, right? And there were many stories of people lining up for hours outside of like Target or Walmart to get good deals. So there's probably an image here. This is an image looking in the door at the crowd, ready to come in, looking to go buy something. But when the stores opened, people would trample each other sometimes to go get this stuff, to go get these you know, specially priced products that they desperately wanted. And there actually are instances where people died in that process. I was going to show a clip of it, and I realized, no, 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 there's kids in the room, and it's not pretty. You can probably go to YouTube if you want to go look that up, but you can just imagine this scene, right? This crowd, suddenly the doors open, and there's not enough for everyone, so you got to go get in there and get it in front of the next person. And so people, in some cases, died in this. You could see people so focused on getting the specially priced thing that they wanted that other people were a hindrance and a barrier to the thing that they wanted to get. And I think this is an image that, image that Amos is painting a bit of these women. And by extension, it's not just the women, right? He's calling them out, but by extension, it's really the, the wealthy, pampered people of Israel. He's saying they're hoarding things, they're selling the poor for things like sandals. They're so focused on their indulgence and getting stuff that people are sacrificed to get it. And I ask this question of myself, and I think it's a question we can ask ourselves. In this country, especially here in the Silicon Valley, which is one of the wealthier parts of this this country that we're in, and in many ways the world. What, you know, does this apply to us in any way? Is there something, you know, are we in any way involved in this type of thing? Many of you may be aware I'm a bivocational pastor. I became a pastor about seven years ago, but most of my career was in high-tech supply chain. In fact, I, my job has been, was for 30 years, in global procurement. And my responsibility, or the teams that I was responsible for, were responsible for negotiating and buying parts for either consumer or commercial products that were being built and sold, uh, all, all here in the Valley in terms of the companies I worked for. But there's something that's also been going on. Over the past 40 years, manufacturing, there's been a huge shift in manufacturing from out of the United States, much of it moving offshore, and much of it actually to China. You see a lot of conversations about this these days, but really that was happening over the last 40 years. And during that process, many people lost their jobs. There was uh, about 7.5 million, since about 1980, about 7.5 million manufacturing jobs have been lost in this country. And the result of that was people had to find another way to make a living, right? You lose your job, it goes somewhere else, what are you going to do? Got to go get another job. But what happened in that process is it wasn't equal for everyone. So those who were more educated went and got more education, and in many ways were able to get better jobs, more high-paying jobs and better jobs, higher-skilled and higher-paying jobs. But what happened was those who were particularly hurt or hit by this were men and women who had less than a high school degree. For those who were less skilled, they had fewer options. Many of them couldn't go back to school, and so they had to go take lower-paying service jobs or maybe no job at all. And one of the results of this whole process has been an increase in the income inequality in this country. In the United States, it's increased dramatically, and the gap between the wealthy and the poorest in this country has expanded faster than ever, and in fact, is the highest level of income inequality among our peers of other nations. There's this chart here that shows sort of this. If you look at the wealth, I mean, you just kind of look at this data of like the wealthy families, and over time, since 83, the upper income has gained more of the U.S. wealth, and the lower has gone down, and even the middle has gone down, as a matter of fact, as well. 
Why did this happen? So I just talked about it. There's a lot of actually reasons, right? If you're an economist, I studied economics, so that's always interesting to me. There's a lot of different reasons, but I've been thinking about this over the years in my life and supply chain, and I think part of this is this. We all wanted more stuff for less money. I think we all wanted more stuff for less money. The pressure was always on in my job. The pressure was always on to get things cheaper so that we could buy more stuff. One way to do that was to move the jobs to cheaper countries. All of us in supply chain participated in it. It was what you did. And even as we saw, I mean, I remember at times being like, oh, this is, these people are losing their jobs. Uh, okay. It just, they didn't always feel right, but it was like, nope, you got to do it. This is how it works. This is what's going to happen. But it was because we had a bigger goal. You got to get more stuff and we got to do it for less money. And a lot of times our jobs depended on it. So we did it as best, the best we could, because that's what we do. We're in the valley. You do it the best you can. You're going to figure out how to squeeze the most out of this. And a lot of us in the valley benefited from this process. You know, it's interesting. I was, there was a point in my career where I was doing a job search, and I happened to interview with a vice president of supply chain at one of these companies. And we're interviewing, right? And they sort of talk about themselves some of the times. And this guy was really proud to share with me that he was the one responsible for moving all of their U.S. manufacturing over to China. He had given it to Foxconn, and they had saved him a bunch of money, which met his goals and his metrics, and he got a huge bonus, and he got promoted because of it. But the question that I remember having at that time and even now is, okay, interesting, but what about the people who lost their jobs who couldn't really do better than that? Was there a process of trampling or crushing the poor going on here? You know, I studied economics and international relations. I understand the dynamics where it's, there's a whole argument that says, yeah, but those things moved over and it actually helped Chinese poor come out of poverty. And it was actually good overall and on balance in the world. We got more stuff for less, and it's a good thing. But you know what? That still doesn't change the fact that a lot of people lost their jobs and may have not been able to make up for it. And it seems to be showed out in the data. Over the last 40 years, the difference between the rich and the poor has gotten worse. And meanwhile, <laughs> our garages and our apartments and our storage units are full of stuff. I've got a, car, I've got a garage, and I can't park either one of our cars. <laughs> right? We got like, <laughs> now, you know, my daughters have stuff. I mean, we all just, we've got tons of stuff. The message of Amos is that this kind of stuff matters to God because it affects people. What we do does affect people. And especially when it affects those who are least able to support themselves, we should care. We should be concerned. I don't know if the message at Amos is like, we should all feel guilty for having stuff, right? I don't know if that's the message, but I do know that the message is challenging us. Do we care about what God cares about? Do we just kind of look past it and go, well, it makes me better off. I got my bonus. I'm good. I'm doing well. What about the, no, well, you know, that's just a side thing that happened. And I have questions. Are we letting consumption and having more things for less get in the way of helping those who are in need around us? Are we letting consumption and having more things for less get in the way of helping those around us? Are we pushing hard to earn more so we can have more stuff, but that's actually giving us less time to serve and care for others around us? Are there any ways we're participating in systems and consumerism that trample the poor? And if so, how do we honor God by lifting people up in that process that are hurt by the systems. And friends, I don't have simple answers. I'm not saying, oh, well, here's the three things we should do. I mean, look, City Team, the video there was helpful because that's one way that we can participate and be involved. There's a lot of things that our church is trying to do to be a part of this, and I encourage you to get involved and be part of that. But I think what's really important is, you know, God might be saying to you, hey, think about buying less and giving more. might be important to think about that. 
I think what matters to God is that we see the world as God sees it. And however God might convict us in that, that we respond with repentance and some change of behavior. It may not be a dramatic thing, but it could be a small thing. It could be just a small way. It could be saying, I'm going to serve once a month in city team, or I'm going to go into the jail once a month and go help and do something about that. You know, my daughter Elaine has taught me a lesson on this. It's always good when your kids teach you lessons, right? My daughter Elaine has taught me. So my, my daughter loves clothes. Okay, I helped her move once. I'm like, what is going on here? But she kind of became convicted about this during her time in college. She was studying sociology and ethics and all of this stuff, and she became convicted about some of the unfair labor practices that were going on in the clothing industry, and also all the waste and the spending that goes on when you're changing your styles all the time and getting the newest thing. And I mean, it's not really great for our planet in many ways. So she became convicted that there's something had to be done, and she wanted to do something, and so she started this thing called Wear Justice at her school. And the idea was around this idea of trying to buy more ethically sourced clothing as well as starting clothing swaps to share clothes so that you could reduce your overall consumption. Here's a slide of some of that clothing swap going on. This is one of the things. It's still actually going on um, at her college. So it started like seven years ago. It took off, and it's still going. And, you know, it's really continuing to teach the next generation about sustainability and compassion. That's just one way. That's one way. She's not as involved with it, but she left it, and it kept going. I don't think she knew at the time that it would go and take off. I would invite you to ask God, how would he like you to respond? Is there any way, even this week, that you could move away from a culture of consumerism and self-gratification and towards what God cares about, towards about loving the poor and doing good to others? Because as a church, we can't set that aside. We can't say, oh, we're doing pretty well, and let's going to focus on our stuff and our you know, little things that we're doing. It's like, well, we have to care about that. That also matters to God. All right, let's continue on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of wrap us up, and, and as we're looking, there's so much in these passages, it's hard to share. But, but as we continue our learning in, in Amos 3 and 4, I want to kind of highlight a couple other things. So, by the way, in all of these images that are being given about the fixtures and the things like that, God is basically telling them, you're going to get, your enemy's going to come in, and he's basically foretelling that Assyria, in probably 35 years, is basically going to come in, invade Israel, capture them, kill many of them, and take them into exile. And then God goes on in chapter 4 to express things like displeasure at their worship services. They're going through these motions, he says, where they're boasting and bragging about how often they're giving offerings. They give offerings like three times a week. Like that seems a little more like, do you really need to do that? And I think sort of what God seems to be suggesting is, yeah, you're doing that for show. You're kind of just showing that, just showing, well, look how wonderful we are. And then in the second half of chapter 4, he describes them all the times that he sent hunger and drought and plagues and defeat on them because he's trying to send them a message that, hey, things aren't going quite right. Like, the way you're doing this, it is not quite right. So let's, let me get you this message kind of thing. But they're constantly ignoring his warnings, and they don't repent, and they don't turn back to him. And so he closes chapter 4 with this. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. This struck me as I read this. I mean, this feels like an ominous statement of judgment. Prepare to meet your God. There's a little bit of Clint Eastwood, it feels like, in that message there. Like, hey, okay, I'm kind of done here. Get ready. You're going to face me. 
Now, the truth of that statement is this. That is true for every person who's ever lived, that there will be a point where they will meet their God. There is a statement, the Bible is very clear, that there's going to be a final judgment day coming, and every person who's ever lived is going to stand in front of God and kind of answer for themselves of what they did or didn't do on the earth. Now, here's the great and amazing news of Jesus. We don't go into that courtroom alone. Jesus is our advocate, and Jesus, if we follow Jesus, Jesus walks in with us, and there's all this stuff that you'd be like, yeah, that didn't do that very well. And Jesus says, you know what? This one's mine. I paid the price. You don't have to, there's no punishment here. The glorious news is that Jesus has done that for us. If you're someone who hasn't followed or doesn't follow Jesus, I would encourage you that you don't want to go into that courtroom alone. You need an advocate in Jesus. But even in that, what Jesus calls us to is to say, I want to make you more like me. This whole process of living, to, living our lives is about sanctification. It's, in other words, becoming more like Jesus. And what's important in this process is not simply saying, I checked the box, I'm not going to go into judgment. Yay! It's, hey, you're set free. Go live as God's called you to live because he's empowered you by the Holy Spirit to do these things that the Israelites weren't able to do, but you are by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to encourage you, there may be a point where God is saying, look, turn. That's what repentance is. Just, hey, you know what? You're a little bit on the, off on the wrong track. You need, go ahead and turn because I will forgive and I will empower you to do the things that I've called you to do. And whether that means just doing something a little bit differently or maybe investing your time in a different way or investing your money in a different way, I would encourage you to just bring that before God and let him speak to you in that. And with that, let me pray for us. Lord, we look at these things and we say, man, this is just a different time and I don't get it. But Lord, it doesn't change. In fact, it shows us more of who you are. And Lord, I pray for each of us as we kind of wrestle with this anger and the fear of you that that you would remind us that it's because of your love. That you actually love us and others enough that you actually care. And we're glad that you care, Lord. And I pray that you would now enable us to care as well. Give us your hearts for those around us. Give us your heart for the poor. Give us your heart for the neighbors around us who don't know you. Fill us with a desire to serve you out of the joy that is set before us, just like you did, Lord. And so I pray for each one of us as we leave here, we would have this sense of like, Lord, I want to be doing more of what you've called me to do. Strengthen me and help me to do it. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.